The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight, here and online. Glad that you're participating with us. Hope that you'll have a blessed evening together for the next hour or so uh, with us, and uh, that you kids will have a nice time when you go out for your class as well. Let's turn our Bibles where we had originally been scheduled to read this morning in Isaiah 8. There is a nice, uh, very, very, uh, how can I say, common, well-known verse here, or should be well-known, I think, for us. It's at 8.20, toward the end of the chapter. After the Lord's promise of the birth of a child from a virgin, verse 14 of chapter 7, and all that will happen after that, the promise that he was making to the nation. Now we read in chapter 8, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with the man's pen concerning Mahershalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. That means what? Within the space of a few months, that's going to happen. Before the little one can speak, those opening, those first simple words. The Lord also has spoken to me again, saying, verse 6, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and rejoice in Rezin and Remaliah's son. Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the rock, uh, sorry, to the neck, and stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, there is the word, Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying... Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken. Be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord who hides His face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in Him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. For the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Think of that, my friends. You're the prophet and his wife, your children. You are 
are, are given by God as a sign for the nation of Israel, that's kind of a heavy responsibility if you think of it. You're a sign in that family. That's from the, the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Verse 19, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? What is this? Mediums, wizards, those who whisper and mutter. These are uh, people who are involved in the occult, necromancy. uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, calling up the dead, so to speak, so, so supposedly. They seek the dead on the behalf of the living. You remember King Saul did something like that with the witch at Endor. Uh, and so he's saying, look, when people tell you to seek those mediums and wizards, you know, witches and, and warlocks and all of that sort of stuff, he says, look, should a, not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Now here's the verse. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word. In other words, if those people talking to you do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through. They will pass through it hard pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. That's what happens to people who do not speak according to this word, this Bible, the law and the testimony of Moses and now, of course, the whole of the New Testament revelation. Isaiah 8. May God be honored in that reading of His Word and our attention to it this evening. Okay. Well, um, we go back now to our study of the Jewish Roots or Hebrew Roots movement. And there are a number of important doctrines that we have to touch on this evening. I'm going to start with... um, We're going to jump right in actually where we left off before, which had to do with the uh, theology and the difficulties in the theology of the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, I hope you were all, I think most of you were here, uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement calling the church back to uh, some kind of idyllic past in which the uh, Christians of the first century were uh, largely Jewish and uh, they obeyed Jewish culture and practices and so on. And this movement is supposing that we need to get back to that movement. We saw a number of characteristics of the movement in as much as uh, how they uh, refer to the law of Moses. Uh, They call themselves Torah observant, despite the fact that as we looked at last time, they cannot observe the Torah in any meaningful sense, really, in any complete sense at all. they elevate Hebrew traditions, cultural practices, and so on um, and so forth. So you can go back and listen to all of that uh, at your leisure another time. So we looked at the theological issues. Uh, we talked about the law not actually being binding on all people of all time. Um, and the, I found another quote in my study that kind of puts it very starkly to help you see the difference that between a Hebrew roots movement and what our theology is. This quote, you cannot have eternal life without the Torah. 
You cannot have eternal life without the law. That is a heresy. And we need to be sure that we're not afraid to say so. That is a heresy. You cannot have eternal life without the law. Uh, That seems to uh, clearly go against all of the New Testament teaching. All of it. And so that was the summation of what we looked at last time with regard to the law as for salvation. Then we looked at the law and their view as to its involvement in our sanctification. That's also incorrect. Galatians 3 and others make that very clear. Colossians 2, Romans chapter 14, and all those that we looked at uh, before. We looked at the dietary regulations. We saw that Christianity has no dietary regulations except for those that are specified in Acts chapter 15, which were meant to avoid offense with Jewish people and not as a means of sanctification or salvation. Uh, We talked a little bit about the Sabbath observation uh, and how they emphasize if you don't, or if you're not moved to keep the Sabbath law or the dietary restrictions, then you're not giving evidence of being born of God. And that really smacks of a works kind of salvation. Whether or not it is depends on the flavor or variation of the Hebrew Roots movement. It's a very loose-knit movement. It's not like there's a central authority that gives the, you know, the teachings from on high, so to speak. Uh, we also mentioned that the Hebrew Roots movement uh, uses extra-biblical sources, um, Jewish commentaries and things like that. And uh, we want to make sure that we fortify our belief that The uh, only source for us is the Bible, the Word of God. The Bible alone is God's Word, 66 books, Genesis to Revelation, Malachi and Matthew, and nothing in between or before or after. That's the Bible. That's the Word of God. Now, a new this time, I didn't mention last time, but they limit celebration of days to only those uh, holidays in the law. Uh, So Christmas is uh, regarded as pagan. It's, in fact, regarded as evil. Easter as well by this movement. Um, But they have a little bit of a problem because uh, only those days found in the law of Moses would mean that the holiday that we call Hanukkah would not be observed. And that is a very uh, important Jewish practice today. But also if you might remember that Jesus did uh, go to Jerusalem and had some part in a Hanukkah uh, celebration or remembrance in John chapter 10, verse 22. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch and there's a, a number of other things there taught, but... He did recognize that at some level. And so uh, that's a holiday that's not recognized or given in the law of Moses. It came after the law. In fact, you remember when Hanukkah began as a remembrance? In what period of time? Ben? That's correct. After the Maccabean revolt. Uh, So the intertestamental period of history between Malachi and Matthew, if you will. I mean between the events, the writing of Malachi and the events of Matthew. Of course, Matthew is written a bit later than the actual events occurred, but that is correct. These, that is not listed in the Law of Moses. Uh, there should be no issue for us with remembering or marking certain days with special thanksgiving for things like the birth of our Lord, the resurrection, 
or even a personal anniversary or uh, a birthday, what would be wrong with offering special thanks on those days and celebrating God's goodness on them? There is no time which is inappropriate to celebrate the goodness of God. Now, if you just make it a secular, materialistic holiday, sure, I mean, absolutely. You should, uh, you should find something better to do with your time than that. But uh, this is, there's nothing wrong with these things. They're fine times to honor God and to enjoy the blessings that He has bestowed upon His people. Uh, last time we also looked at uh, the matter of New Testament, uh, or rather Testament priority, Old Testament priority. And the idea is that uh, for these folks, the Old Testament kind of has a priority over the New Testament. That's kind of opposite of what the theological trend is today. Many people want to put priority on the New Testament as over against the Old Testament and say, well, we've got to use the New Testament to understand properly the Old to reinterpret the Old or find the real meaning of the Old Testament. These folks know, they say, we've got to go back to the Old to get back to the real practice of religion. All right, now, the doctrine of Christ. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time here because this is so important. And it's one of these issues that marks off what we would call a cult. When a belief system or doctrinal system opposes the orthodox biblical teaching of the person of Christ or the work of Christ, then you know you have what we call a cult. <clears throat> okay? In this case, the person of Christ. Uh, there's no unified doctrine of Christ in the Hebrew roots movement. Like I said, it's kind of a, a mishmash or a loosely organized affair, but this, I, this statement I found in my research last week, and it's this, it is not rare to find among Hebrew roots believers people who reject the notion of Yeshua or Jesus as God in the flesh. Let me say that again. It is not rare to find among Hebrew roots believers, people who reject the notion of Jesus as God in the flesh. Now that's a major problem. The notion of a trinity or any other God in the flesh Messiah teaching is a fundamental to them violation of that clear understanding of the one and only true God according to some in the movement. So they say, well, if Jesus is God, then that means that you don't believe in the oneness of God or you don't believe that God is one and unique, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that they think that's a denial of that idea. To make Jesus as God, they say, is the equivalent of breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. This, my friends, is basically the Jewish error propagated into the modern Hebrew roots movement. We have taught very plainly from the Bible. In fact, I'll say it this way, the Bible plainly teaches that Jesus shares the exact divine nature of God so that there are three persons with one essence in the one and only true God who is a triune God. Now, I didn't mention the Holy Spirit, but you know that already. We can detail that doctrine and, and I think we should, again, um, and here are some summary points to help 
you review and refresh the doctrine of the deity of Christ. First of all, you want to jot these down. So uh, sometimes people, you know, you'll run into folks like this, Jehovah's Witnesses or some of these Hebrew Roots Movement folks, and you'll have to address this issue. Number one, how do you address it? Well, the Son of God who came in the flesh as Jesus is not a created being, number one. Okay? He's not a created being. We're demonstrating that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. That the Son of God is God, first of all, because He's not a created being because He did not have a beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 17, verse number 5, Jesus praying in the high priestly prayer to the Father says that He wants to, He's asking to enter into the glory which He had with the Father when? You remember? Before the world was. He had that glory before anything else existed. What does Colossians 1.17 say? We're making the argument that Jesus is the Son of God because He does not have a beginning. Verse Colossians 1.17 And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. Um, what about the testimony of John the Baptist? John chapter 1 and verse number 15. John the Baptist said of Him, Here comes one who is preferred before Me because He was before Me. Now, if you pay attention to the narrative in Luke, that's maybe a strange thought because who was born first? John the Baptist or Jesus? Do you remember? John the Baptist was born first as a human. Remember, his birth announcement came from the angel and then six months later, the announcement came to Mary and then John was born and then Jesus was born probably some six months later. And uh, five, seven, whatever, how many, many months it was. And so you have John the Baptist, six months older than his cousin Jesus, but he says he was before me. He's referring to the doctrine of Christ's pre-existence. So the Son of God is not created because He did not have a beginning. The Son of God also was not created, so meaning that He is something other than a creation, that He is God, in fact. He was not created because... Anything that was created was created by Him. Okay, So He pre-exists, number one. Number two, He created everything. John 1.3 And without Him nothing was made that was made. So any made or created thing came from Jesus. Or how about uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 2. I'm going to fly through some of these so you have to have fast fingers tonight to... Follow if you're following in your Bible. Hebrews 1.2 God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. We already looked at Colossians 1.17. Colossians 1.16 says uh, of Jesus, Colossians 1.16, By Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. 
So how many things were created by Jesus? Everything. There's not a one thing that's omitted from that. And some say, well, it, it omits himself. You know, he was also created. He was just created first. No, the Bible's unequivocal here. There's only, there's only, there's only two things in the universe, if I could call them things. There's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's everything else. And there's a great divide between them. God and His Son and the Holy Spirit are uncreated things. Everything else are created things. These over here, no beginning. Over here, everything else had a beginning. Okay? Everything else in the created things category. There are only those two categories of things that do exist. Third, third, the Son of God is the very image and likeness of God. Hebrews 1.3 You can't get any plainer language than that. Although it might boggle your mind, and I suppose that it should, because God is not us, we are not God, um, but the Son of God is the very image and likeness of God. That's Hebrews 1.3. I'll read it to you just for sake of completeness. It says of Him, "...who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high." Became so much better than the angels. Okay, so the Son of God is the very image and likeness of God. You can say that of no one else, of nothing else, of no angel, of no other being, of no created being, certainly. Uh, and it's only said of Jesus. Number four, back in Hebrews again, chapter 1, verse 8. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is called God by God. Look at Hebrews 1.8. But to the Son, He says, your throne... Now, who is the He says? Well, that's speaking of God the Father. If you go trace that back all the way back to the beginning, uh, it's very clear that it's Old Testament quotation after Old Testament quotation, the Father speaking. And to the Son, verse 8, He says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So here we have God calling Jesus God. What other evidence do you need than that? Okay? We cannot suggest that Jesus is not God in the flesh. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. This is Orthodox Christian teaching held by Christians for 2,000 years. Number five, Jesus is called God by the apostles. Okay? Not only is Jesus called God by God, which ought to settle the matter finally and fully, but He's also called God by the apostles. Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. The Apostle Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is our God and Savior? Jesus Christ is. This is a Granville Sharp construction, as it's called in Greek grammar. And it's very clear that it's one and the same person, Jesus Christ, referred to by these two titles, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe, maybe we could say, t instead of title, name, God as, the, as a name. 
Second Peter one one. Okay, that was Paul. And should we be confused? Uh, we can look at Peter and get verification of this. Uh, it says Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of who? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One and the same person. It's not God, comma, and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we call Him Lord, by the way. He is God. And then finally, Romans 9.5. I think this is probably the most overlooked Although it's not a Granville Sharp construction, it might be nice if it were, but it's not. But listen to this. Paul writing again. He's writing about Israelites from whom or of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh, Romans 9.5 says, from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all. And who is this Christ? He's the eternally blessed God. Amen. All right, number six in our proof, brief proof here that Jesus is God, equal to God, shares essence of God, part of the Godhead. Number six, Jesus did the works of God. For example, he raised the dead. Now you could say, well, Elijah did that, and some others, Peter did that. But it's clear that he, that Jesus did it in a, in a different way than those others. Think of Lazarus. Think of the, the man who died in the city of Nain. Jesus goes up to the coffin and just touches it, tells, it to, tells the procession to stop, finishes the funeral, raises the dead. What about this? How about making food out of essentially nothing? I mean, taking food from... You know, a few fishes and loaves of bread and feeding thousands upon thousands of people. That's a work of God. How about walking on the water? How about stilling the storm, the wind, and the waves on the sea? The works of God. Number seven. Colossians 1 again tells us that in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. That's Colossians 1, uh, verse, uh, where did I say, 119. It, it says in 119 of Colossians, it pleased the Father that in Him all fullness should dwell. And then chapter 2, verse number 9, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay, so, in the body of Jesus dwells all the fullness of God. Now, that's a, that's a stunning statement if you think about it. That God came in the flesh. That God tabernacled with His people according to John 1.14. He came in the flesh and dwelt among us. That's what God did in the flesh in Jesus. John 10.30 uh, brings us to number 8 on our list. Number eight, Jesus is one with the Father. Can you say that? Can any human say that? Can any angel say that? Can any demon say that? No, only Jesus is one with the Father. I and the Father, he said, are one. Are you familiar with that verse? John chapter 10? 
I'll just read it again so you are because if you're just being brought through this study for the first time or not familiar with these things, you need to know them. And some will try to say, well, that means I and my Father are one purpose or you know, one goal or one vision or whatever, but it's more than that. This is clearly speaking about His essence, His being. He says, after He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then, since we're in John, it's convenient for us to go back to John chapter 5. Why don't you turn there to verse 23. John chapter 5. And verse number 23. It says that all judgment has been committed to the Son, verse 22, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. He's supposed to what honor the Son just as He honors the Father. Well, it's they and the subject here, plural. They should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So if somebody says, yeah, I believe in God the Father, I mean, just one God, no, not, not, no Trinity, then they're taking Jesus right out of the equation. Are they honoring Him like just as they honor the Father? No, they're not. They're setting Jesus on a peg below or to the Father. And so, the Son, for Him to have the same honor as the Father, He must be of the same essence as the Father. If we do not honor the Son this way, we do not honor in actuality the Father either. Okay? So, those nine points, very important for us to kind of strengthen our understanding of the person of Christ as God. This is an issue that was dealt with at great length in the early church, the early church councils and uh, church history in the 300s, 400s, 500s A.D. Uh, all dealt with this issue and hammered it out uh, from Scripture and was, were very clear. And so this idea that Jesus is not God in the flesh is a departure from sound teaching and needs to be called out as such. All right, now, uh, next on our list of theological issues is dispensationalism. And you know that we are advocates of that form of doctrine here, primarily because we believe that Scripture is to be interpreted literally, plainly, consistently that way, in accordance with its original meaning. We don't have time to get into all of that, but the Hebrew Roots Movement rejects dispensationalism and says and believes in a light version of replacement theology, we'll call it. The nation of Israel is basically uh, replaced by the people of God who believe in Yeshua, Jesus, the quote, right way. The right way. By the way, that reminds me, earlier I had edited my notes and I'm trying to see if I can find this. Yeah, the uh, the 
HRM advocates say this kind of phrase. They say, like, I feel so good now because I have learned how to believe in a Hebrew way. I've learned how to believe in Jesus in a Hebrew way. So that's kind of a code word for the Hebrew roots theology. I've I've finally arrived and now I'm believing in the right way, which is the Hebrew way. That's not correct as we're making the case here in this short series on the Hebrew roots movement. But anyway, uh, they are teaching that Israel is basically replaced by the people of God, the church now, who believe in, in Yeshua the correct way. Uh, and, the, and let me give you a couple quotes. These are really outlandish. I'll just give them to you so you see what I found. The first quote from one of my sources that's available in the notes, by the way, on the website. This has been updated uh, two or three times. And, uh, the latest version is there as of this afternoon. The quote is this, The entire reason the church created dispensationalism with its eschatological view of futurism was to get rid of the law so they could explain away their corruptions. Now, have you ever heard that about dispensationalism before? That's not true at all. The church didn't create dispensationalism. It found that teaching in Scripture. Yes, we hold a view of futurism, but by no means to get rid of the law so we could explain away our corruptions. In fact, dispensationalism teaches that there's In a way, in fact, many dispensationalists, right or wrong, whatever you think about this, think that there is a higher calling than the law of Moses. There's the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit, not the law of the flesh. And that is an even higher law which deals not only with externals but also internals. And that's a higher calling that calls us even farther away from corruption than the law of Moses. So this quote that I've shared is a very foolish and anti-historical position. What it's doing is saying that all dispensationalists are antinomian. Antinomian. Against any law or against any regulations on conduct. And that's an extraordinarily reckless charge. That is a reckless charge. It's an unfounded charge. It's a foolish charge. It needs to be called out as such. You will not find in history at all any such indication. Uh, secondly, another quote, and I can't, I couldn't put all of them in here. It just, you know, made me more upset the more I read it. But uh, this second one: dispensationalism was created by those who did not want the Reformation to take hold. Now, this is historically ignorant as well. Dispensationalism came as a system came along after the Reformation was well underway, and in fact. There's a book by one dispensationalist that says that dispensationalism is a completion of, a continuation and completion of the Reformation, making the argument that the Reformers did not move far enough away from the Catholic Church, which is true in some ways. The Reformation moved a certain amount away from the Catholic Church in the doctrine of salvation, justification, and those sorts of things. But uh, what about the doctrine of the kingdom? Didn't move far enough away from What about the doctrine of baptism? The Reformation didn't move that far in those areas from the Catholic Church. And dispensationalists would argue, and I think can make a successful case, we should complete the Reformation and go all the way back to the Bible and get rid of all the ancient traditions from the Catholic Church that are not biblical. 
So this is a woefully uninformed approach to dispensationalism and it's historically inaccurate. It's out of date. Um, at least uh, one source is demonstrating that he wants a reformed approach to Scripture. But uh, this particular one rejects the rapture, the tribulation, the personal antichrist. And he also seems to go to the extreme of being anti-local church. Uh, you know, Church is kind of an evil thing to him, this one author. Now, no church is perfect, but that does not give you warrant to leave all churches. Cultish forms of doctrine often do this. They reject what God has clearly revealed. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says that we're to gather in local churches. And instead, what movements like this do is they gravitate towards some interpretation which is... Um, you know, they see it because they've been enlightened. And so, you know, when you hear somebody say, outside of the matter of salvation, they say, well, I finally saw the light and I'm going back to my Hebrew roots or, or some other thing. You know, I'm going back to the Catholic Church. You know they haven't seen anything but darkness. And their eyes have been, you know, reversed. So they think they see light when they're actually seeing darkness. Now, there are two other theological issues that are important for us to touch and these I had sort of overlooked for a while and uh, revised my notes on them. So they're new uh, in the notes even from last week. Uh, and the first is soul sleep. Soul sleep. I had heard that some Hebrew Roots movement's adherents hold to the doctrine of soul sleep. You know what that is? Okay, It is that a person who dies sleeps through their intermediate state until the resurrection of the body. In other words, there's no conscious existence after death and before the resurrection. I found one source fairly easily that verified this is a thing for Hebrew Roots Movement advocates. Some go so far as to say this. They say the soul does not go anywhere when somebody dies. It does not go anywhere when somebody dies. What does that mean? It means the soul resides in the body when somebody dies. And it's just there in the, in the, in the coffin. It just stays with the body until the body is resurrected. And so that there's kind of a time warp after you die. You're there in the coffin. Your soul is there. Your body's there. And then time just passes like an instant. And however long it is, if it's a thousand years to the rapture, you just sense it as no time and you're resurrected and there you go. It's all done. This doctrine is also held by, I think, some Seventh-day Adventists, if not all, and Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's a mark of these uh, other cults. <clears throat> it's based on a wrong understanding of what word? What word? Soul sleep. It's, mis it's a misunderstanding of the word sleep. When, when Paul says that many are weak and sick among you and many sleep, what does he mean? He simply means death, that they have died. Uh, Daniel 12.2, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. It's simply a euphemism for death. You notice how people don't like to say death or, you know, so and so died. They say, you know, they were promoted or they, uh, 
you know, they uh, they passed away. Uh, they they left this life. I mean, I do the same thing because you know you don't always want to. They died. They died. They died. They died. But you know, you read Genesis chapter five. What does it say? And he lived so many years, and he what? He died. He died. He died. Over and over again. So you know, we don't want to say it because it's kind of like eh, it's a little uncomfortable. But the fact is, when somebody has died, they have died, and they're still dead if they're dead. Okay, they haven't resurrected yet. They're in that dead state. All right, so it sounds simple, I suppose, but sleep is not for an unconsciousness of the soul after death. In fact, after one dies, the soul goes immediately to be with the Lord, if a believer, or to Hades, if an unbeliever. What text of Scripture tells us that somebody goes to be with the Lord? 2 Corinthians 5. Verse number 8. Okay, Keep that verse in mind. Some of these addresses are really handy when you've got to turn your Bible to show somebody who's, who's talking to you about this. Uh, to go be with the Lord. Now, how do we know that the, the doctrine of soul sleep is false besides what we've said already? Well, Revelation 6 is probably a good place to begin, although it's at the end of your Bible. And you might be wondering what in the world is in that passage in Revelation 6. Well, listen to this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar what? The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. He didn't see bodies under there. He didn't see people you know, nicely lined up on their bunk beds sleeping. He saw souls who had been slain. And what did these souls do? They didn't just lie there asleep in their dead bodies. It says they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You know, they're kind of a little impatient, in fact. How long is it going to be until, God, you get this job done? You know, we've been hanging out here for a while. We want to get this over with. I'm being a little facetious, but... A white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who, had, who were to be killed as they were would be completed. So these souls of dead people are conscious in heaven and they're speaking with God. Then you have the example of Luke 16. In Luke 16, verse number 19. And uh, we often go back to this passage, but it's a good passage uh, spoken at the lips of our Lord. It's not, I don't think, a parable, but a true-to-life story. You could call it a parable if you will, but it doesn't refer to any particular person um, as some have suggested uh, you know, interpretations I've never heard before in my life uh, that this refers to certain, a certain person or persons that the Lord is rebuking, but uh, that's not the point of what is being said here. He's talking to His disciples uh, he's talking about stewardship. He's talking about life after death, about listening to the Word of God instead of you know, having to have miracles be your signs to point you to God. And we have the rich man and Lazarus and the story is told about them. They both died. Uh, it says the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. There's basically like what we said in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that the, the soul was carried to uh, be with Christ, be with God, in this case in Abraham's bosom because it's an Old Testament context, pre-cross. And it says the rich man also died and was buried. 
Now, where was his body? It was in the ground. Where was he? Well, it says, in being in torments in Hades, that must be his soul. His soul has been separated from his body. That's what death is, by the way. We'll look at that in a moment. And he saw Abraham and he talked to Abraham and he wanted him to send somebody to tell his brothers in the land of the living about this terrible place and so on and try to convince Abraham to do that. And it was a no-go with Abraham. He said, look, they have the Bible. So the rich man is awake. He's conscious. He's in torment. He represents any person who dies and goes to Hades. Very clear. Then uh, two other ideas here. One is in Philippians. Philippians uh, 1.23. Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between two, the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he again points out two states. I'm either here or I'm there. I'm either here or I'm there. And 2 Corinthians 5 is the same. He's saying, look, I'd rather, I'd rather experience the rapture, but if I can't, at least I'll go to be with Christ, my soul. And then the body will be resurrected later is the teaching of Scripture. And then finally, let's look at oh, a couple of Old Testament texts since we want to include that testament as well. Let's look at Genesis 35 and see what exactly happens to a soul when a person dies. Genesis 35. This may seem, this may seem somewhat obvious to you who have been under our instruction for some time, but just to reinforce your belief and knowledge. Genesis 35, verse 18, speaking of Rachel's death, and it says, And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died that she named her son. Her soul was departing. That's what happens when somebody dies. How about Ecclesiastes 12? Ecclesiastes 12 and verse number 7. Speaking of death itself, it says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So here's clearly, although not detailed in terms of New Testament understanding of the body and soul relationship and where spirits go uh, afterwards, he's saying, look, there's a separation that occurs. The body goes to the dust, the spirit goes to God, and God deals with it, sends it to where it needs to go. Hades or to, the, uh, to everlasting bliss. Okay? So you have a number of these passages that teach very clearly the soul does go somewhere. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 26 says, As the body without the spirit is what? Dead. Okay, so the body and the spirit have been sep- excuse me, separated. That is what death is. It's a separation of the body from the spirit. Physical death. Spiritual death is also separation. Separation from God. Me from God. If I'm in spiritual death, I'm lost and my sins have separated me between, uh, put a separation wall, if you will, between me and God, so I'm not one at, at oneness with Him or in, in, uh, in His good graces, as it were. That's soul sleep. Some Hebrew roots uh, advocates believe that. Not all believe that, I suspect. But I know some who, 
who do based on what I was reading and personal experience. Then, final theological issue is related to soul sleep, but it's this. Annihilationism. Annihilationism. You know what that is. Annihilationism. Now, I haven't been able to confirm that HRM advocates all or even some believe in annihilationism, although I've heard it before. But this means the souls of those who are wicked are not punished forever, but rather are destroyed and pass into a state of non-existence. Okay? That's basically the teaching of atheism imported into the Christian theology, so to speak. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a rejected import, okay? We don't take this teaching whatsoever. Uh, whether or not HRM believes this doctrine does not change the fact that it's out of step with Scripture. The Bible is clear that people who die in unbelief are punished for their sin forever. We saw Luke 16 with the rich man, right? In Hades, in torment. Very clear. He does not pass into non-existence. Uh, Revelation 20 also. By the way, the, you know the only reason we can know this is what? The Bible tells us. What other authority is there out there that confidently and authoritatively can assert what happens after death? Is there any? No. Oh, there are a few false religions that have their ideas about what happens in the afterlife. Uh, what, what kind of kind of sensual blisses are there? But that's not what the Bible teaches. Those are false religions. Oh, of course I know they'll say we're a false religion too, but we have a lot more to go on, a lot more reason, history, logic, and so on to, to go to back us up. But Revelation 20, verse number 10. It says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Those are humans. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That does not sound like they will pass into non-existence. They will not be annihilated. They will be punished for their sin. And then in verse 15 of the same chapter, it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, the, the logic behind this annihilation idea is, well, if you cast somebody in a lake of fire, they're going to be burned up and they're going to be disappeared. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. This lake of fire is not a lake of fire that extinguishes anyone's soul. It's a lake of fire that in which their soul is sustained forever as they receive the punishment due their errors because they did not like to have Christ take their punishment for them. The lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels and those who do not believe will also be cast into that place. It's an everlasting fire because the people will be there forever. And then the other logic of this of this of the annihilationism movement is that well they say if if somebody's in the lake of fire forever doesn't that mean they have eternal life? Oh dear. <laughs> we have to go back to basics. The Bible presents eternal life as the life of bliss with God. The Bible presents the opposite, this as eternal what? Death. Being in the lake of fire is not eternal life. Oh, we could say, yes, it's, 
It's, it's a life that lasts forever. It's an existence that goes on and on and on and on and on. Yes, it is. But that's not an existence of life. That's an existence of death. So when the Bible uses eternal life, it's using it in the sense of eternal bliss with God and with Christ and with all those who believe. Not this at all. Okay, So don't confuse the idea of eternal life and just say it's the everlasting continuance of the state of being alive. That's not what eternal life is in the Bible. It's all of that plus the blessing of being with God. And this is the eternal condemnation of being everly, everlastingly existing in the state of death, which is separation from God. Uh, Revelation 20 and verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. And so on. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Eternal death. Spiritual death. Revelation 21, 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now let me touch on a couple of other things as we close tonight and close this series for now. First of all, practical issues here. First of all, HRM cannot and does not fulfill the law. They engage in a little bit of bait and switch technique here. Oh, we, we're Torah observant. We keep the law, but the reality is they can't keep the law. How do they make sacrifices? They don't. Where could they make sacrifices? There is no place. There's no Jerusalem with a temple where they can go. They speak about all 613 laws, but I wonder how many of them they actually keep. How many of those 613 do they actually keep? It's impossible to keep many of them today. No annual pilgrimages, no sacrifices. They have no atoning sacrifice. God has seen to that in order to make clear that there is no other sacrifice than Jesus Christ. Second practical issue. Teaching doctrines that confuse honest believers and are so division among them in the church is not tolerable to Bible-believing Christians. Okay? We just cannot tolerate that. And I thus warn you that you watch out for this sort of thing. Somebody coming along and saying, look, I'm going I'm to give you something new you've never heard before. We've got to go back to our Hebrew roots. And they make it sound all convincing. They're trying to campaign to change your view or change a family member's view or change the church. No, not at all. Okay, False doctrine. We've looked at it in detail from Scripture now for four sessions, I believe, and uh, or three at least, and we're not going to be tricked by that. Those who create such divisions are to be rejected and avoided. Now, a third issue, and this is kind of a real side one, don't... Don't worry about this one, but I'll just mention it for completeness sake. Some have tried to make a distinction between the Hebrew Roots Movement and the Christian Hebrew Roots Movement. I have not been able to find a convincing um, explanation of the distinction or, or anything about it. So I just found one reference that said something about that. And I just thought, I think they're, they're splitting hairs where there's no hair to be split. Okay. Uh, also, 
practical issue. Theological error invariably leads to other theological error and practice. The current generation of Hebrew Roots Movement advocates must consider the effects of their beliefs and practices on the next generation. The movement confuses and clouds issues so badly that the next generation will likely run amok into works-based salvation and denials of other crucial doctrines, even if their parents do not hold these particular errors. I mean, parents, physical parents, but also spiritual parents. Like, you know, one generation of early dispensationalists in the 1900s taught about free grace and you know, no need for, or something that kind of led people to believe that there's no need for repentance. The next generation of people come along and teach absolutely there is no need for repentance. And then you have what? A different gospel. So the teaching of one generation was a seed which led the next generation of, you know, children or seminary students or pastors to go astray and not to hold correct and sound doctrine. So you have to be cautious about this. I think of this with parents who have alcohol in their home. They're teaching their children that it's okay to have that. And there is a real danger there with children who grow up and don't have quite maybe the self-control that their parents have developed. And they can fall into drunkenness, which is a deep sin without uh, much difficulty. And then finally, practical matter. Uh, as a pastor, I'm required to inform the church on such things as so, so that I can faithfully fulfill my ministry. So this is, oh, it's not pleasant, but it's part of the job. And I know that it means that people will not like me or us as a church, but uh, my, my goal is not to hurt anybody. It's to teach to feed, to lead, to guide the church, but also to guard and protect the flock from error. That's part of the calling of a pastor. And the Bible makes clear that warnings are very important, a very important part of ministry. So the Hebrew Roots Movement is not a form of sound doctrine. It has errant theology in a number of ways and must be avoided. Calling upon people to believe in Messiah in a Hebrew way is never what the Bible calls Christians to do. That's an added requirement to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. No one is called to change their culture to the Hebrew culture in order to be a faithful Christian. No one is called to keep select parts of the law of Moses or to believe in the, quote, holy language. We didn't even touch that, but the holy language, the Hebrew language, uh, some of these believe. These things are additions to the Bible that are wrong but you can see maybe how they hold some kind of attraction to them because they have a historical nexus. You know how people get kind of excited about um, uh, you know, antiques? They go to an antique store and they see the antiques or they look at an antique, uh, they go to an old home and, or they want to historically preserve that home. You know, and then forever after that, if it's in a historic district, then you can't make any changes to it. And so, you know, forget progress and updates and technology and improvements in energy efficiency and all that sort of thing. They're just out the window. There's some kind of attraction to that old stuff as if it's better. The Lord Jesus said something about that, didn't He? You know, the guy who has been accustomed to the old wine will not immediately take to the new. 
He just won't like it. It just won't seem right to him. But there's some kind of attraction to this sort of thing, and I want you to be aware of that. Make sure that you're attracted to biblical things, not to just things that are you know, kind of cool because they're historical or you know, maybe cool because they're new and technology and all that. Okay, so that really brings me to the end of the message there. But let me mention one other thing. There's kind of a sequence of, of movement. People uh, you know, maybe grew up in a Christian environment and they find the Hebrew roots movement and they can move to that. And then they kind of even move next from that to something else and maybe all the way back to Judaism and apart from Christ. And you can see how that works with the denial of the deity of Christ and going back to the law and, and that sort of thing. And so that's a sequence of of movements that people sometimes make. And one of the steps in that movement uh, is a movement or a doctrinal belief system that I'll just introduce you to right now. Um, there's a fellow who uh, writes Jews for Judaism, and he says it's an education and counseling organization that seeks, well, actually a bunch, a group, that, that seeks to counteract deceptive proselytizing Targeting Jews for conversion. So Jews for Judaism is basically Jews for Jesus, the opposite of it. You know what I'm saying? Jews for Jesus does this. This group works against them. That's what this group is. They see Hebrew Roots Movement as a fringe of the fringe. Farther out even than Jews for Jesus and rejected by both Hebrew Christians and Jews. And I would add biblical Gentile Christians as well. They find that Hebrew Roots Movement people tend to reject Christianity. In other words, that's a tendency to move from Christianity to Hebrew Roots to a rejection of Christianity altogether. And in learning the Torah, they move instead toward a stream of more pure Judaism. Or worse, they convert along that sequence of steps as they step step away from Jesus Christ. They convert to what's called Noah. Hidism or Noahidism, N-O-A-H, Noah, Noahism, I'll call it. It's, it's too hard to say Noahidism. There's too many syllables there. But uh, whatever the pr- right pronunciation of it is, N-O-A-H-I-D-I-S-M, the Noahidic law. It's a movement of non-Jews who observe the seven Noahide laws as the basis of morality. So they're going even beyond the Hebrew roots back to their Noahic roots. And here's what the law, these laws are. There's seven of them. First of all, do not deny God. Do not blaspheme God. Do not murder. You can find that in Genesis 9. Uh, do not engage in incest, adultery, pederasty, bestiality. Verse uh, Number five, rather. Do not steal. Number six, do not eat a live animal. And that's easy. Uh, number seven... Establish a legal system to maintain some semblance of law and order. That's the Noahide laws. And so there is a movement of people who believe in this Noahidism. And they, they believe these laws. Now you don't see anything about grace in there. You don't see anything about Christ in there. You don't see anything about repentance in there, forgiveness, sacrifice for sin. None of that. It's another false religion drawn from the Bible. Uh, sad that people can use God's Word to produce such heresy. But we'll leave it at that for now, okay? So just at least you're introduced to it. Be aware of it. There is that idea out there. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You'd help our church to be sound, to be um, 
true to you, to not be um, blown about by every wind of doctrine that blows into town, as it were, and to just stand firm for the sake of the gospel. Now, Lord, we pray for those both here and online. You'd watch over them. May our fellowship be sweet. May we enjoy the evening and the rest that you grant. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.